Welcome everybody to this episode of the Evidence Into Action EEF podcast. Really pleased today to be exploring the recent review on cognitive science approaches in the classroom. We have the real privilege of speaking to one of the authors of the review and as ever we speak to teachers who are making sense and, and interpreting that research evidence and, and thinking about its relevance in practice. Uh, I'm going to be joined by my colleague um, Caroline Bilton who is fair to say now a regular on the podcast. Um, Caroline just say hello. Hi there. Hi. Yes, I've managed to gate crash another podcast, Alex. I'm super excited about this one, though. Really important stuff. So thank you very much for asking me back. And our first guest, um, we're really privileged that we're going to speak to uh, Dr. Tom Perry from Birmingham University. And 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 rather than me give um, the kind of the, the biography, Tom, I'll just invite you to just give a bit of background um, uh, with the culmination of um, the focus of our chat, which is uh, this really interesting, exciting review. Thanks, Alex. Um, yes, I'm uh, w working at University of Birmingham. I'm um, um, been leading the educational leadership master's programmes, and my my role on those is essentially to talk with school leaders, teachers about how to use evidence in the classroom, how to improve schools, and how to um, apply and uh, engage in their own research. Um, I've, um, I'm a bit of a methods geek. I'm interested in review, synthesis work, secondary data analysis. I do a lot of evaluations, improvement. So a lot of it is about um, how do we collect evidence that we can make sense of and how can we put it into practice and all the, the methods and knowledge exchange and everything that go, goes into that. Um, I've had the privilege of leading this review. Um, we've had a, a large team uh, from some from the University of Birmingham. We've had experts in cognitive neuroscience, in the translation of evidence and education policy, um, as well as um, external collaborators. We are working with Philip Accordingly and Paul Crisp from the Centre for the Use of Research and Evidence in Education, who again, a huge wealth of expertise there in CPD, in um, reviews and teachers using evidence and we were also joined by um, Julia and Amy um, from the Queen's Anne School who have a associated research centre called the Brain Can Do Research Centre where they are literally doing this, creating programmes and uh, um, um, walking the walk as well as talking the talk about um, using cognitive science in the classroom and we've, uh, it's been a real privilege being, uh, to lead that team and the conversations we've had along the way have been fascinating. And one of the things, just when we reflect on the breadth of that team, is, is this real scope and expertise, which probably captures the, the challenges of the review and the breadth of the review. And I, I want to come back to that in a moment. But my first question, just, just after you mentioned about working with school leaders, and I wonder whether cognitive science was something that, in that work, in those conversations, did you know that this was something that was kind of emerging as a bit of a, a trend, a bit of an interest, a bit of a kind of, you know, it was emerging in schools um, quite significantly. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's been pretty clear that over, I'd say in particular over the last five years, we've seen more and more cognitive science being discussed. I can I can see why people, why, why teachers, leaders have latched onto it and been excited by it and found ready application for it. Um, 
it, it, it certainly was a, a big part of that. Um, I, I think as well, it, there's often been a, a, a kind of disconnect with some education research and uh, practice and uh, being sort of this slightly bridging person who has that conversation. Um, sometimes I've got a little bit more work to do to say, well, you know, this, this, this is what it looks like and or asking people what it looks like in their context, where I think cognitive science, I think people can see fairly readily. Um, and I think the what I think what's really exciting and it's something which is quite unusual to this review is that we were looking at the applied evidence in the classroom and that sort of it can be summarised in its own right. But even where there are gaps in that or even where there's limitations in it, you know, there's this mountain of evidence sitting behind you from the from, in particular, the cognitive psychology, which has tested these uh, principles over many decades and I think that's been quite unusual because a lot of the research you tend to um, engage with and review, well, if a trial fails or there's some problem or it doesn't implement properly, well, that's all you've got, really. Whereas uh, in cognitive science, you can sort of put the two together in intelligent ways. And as I say, so that's something which it's useful to do on the review. We've tried to put together the, the, the theory and evidence from the basic science, but look what it looks like in the applied context yeah i think i think that one of the great strengths of of the review is that you know you can sometimes have um, a trial where an approach doesn't work and you're you're not quite sure why and, and there's not enough kind of understanding of the theoretical underpinnings and kind of thinking that might have led to some of those and, and that seems to show in the review where you know you're able to tackle both at once um, just, you mentioned there a mountain of evidence, and I think that's probably um, probably a fair description. Um, and, and the review itself is, is really substantive, and, and it just has to be, doesn't it, to kind of to grapple with that complexity? Um, what what was one of the you know what were the most significant challenges of just dealing with that sheer breadth in terms of you know narrowing it down, answering research questions, making those judgments? It, it was an absolutely colossal job. Um, we we uh, we reviewed over forty thousand papers. That was that was a that was a that was after duplicates had been removed from our searches. Um, that stems from our uh, insistence, really, to to look at cognitive science broadly. We had specific targeted searches for you know some of the retrieval practice or the, the kind of well known strategies, but we also had kind of general terms around working memory, memory, um, with general terms around cognitive science, learning science, neuroscience. So we, we did very much see the value in, in trying to cast the net widely and, and potentially even be in a position to change what uh, falls into the frame of cognitive science. And, and one of the examples in the review is we ended up with a section which we, we hadn't necessarily anticipated on embodied uh, learning and there the, are the other examples within the review. Um, but of course, that gives us a really big job. Could you just explore a little bit? Just explain first um, for us ecological validity and, and the challenges between that kind of theory and practice gap and, and some of the distances between you know, different subjects, different age groups. So um, ecological validity, we're, we're talking about the degree to which a finding in a piece of research um, is going to... Um, translate to and, and work in a real life setting. It, 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 it comes to the word, you know, you've got ecology, it's, it's how 
and ecology it's how living things relate to each other and the environment and it, you know it's um, a long time ago I was teaching year four and it was well you know we've got a camel and a penguin here who's going to survive in the rainforest the, the Antarctic tundra and the desert and then why I mean how they adapted to that and it's it's think it's it's not just saying you know penguins are a great animal and it's a survivor it's a well it's survivor where and how and in what conditions so ecological validity is about whether that leap can be made um, you can get lab studies which have high ecological validity, providing they've got the principles right and the principles do actually apply in the real world. It's just it's much harder to test. Um, where I've just mentioned sort of theoretical generalization, you know, you've got a well, there's this principle at play here, the principles also at play here. So even though that's a lab and even though this is a classroom, it's learning, it's, 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 it's fundamental to what learning is. So we, we can theoretically generalise and, and, and that's one way of doing it. I think one of, you can also talk about empirical generalisation. So it's, it, you, you generalise by collecting evidence. And, and that's, I think, where we were a little bit more. We, we wanted to see where things have been applied and the more times they've been applied in different places and the more subjects they've been done in and more age groups, the more confident we would be that this is pretty generalizable. So, and that's one thing we've highlighted. So things like retrieval practice, we found, you know, huge age range, lots of different subjects, even, you know, some variation in the practice of doing it, but we could be pretty confident and there's an empirical generalization there as well as a theoretical one about how learning works and the importance of retrieval practice to that. And in other places, we didn't have the empirical evidence to say, well, this has been done in lots of different subjects. So we're less sure about that. The principle seems good. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's fairly inevitable that there's a gap between where things have been tested and the specifics of that and where we might apply them and I mean, I've met, so I've mentioned there, you, you might apply elsewhere and generalise by theory. You might do that by, well, empirical evidence that, you know, there's, there's just enough different places it's been tested in. And I think you'd also just do it through practice and expertise that I think teachers, they all sort of want to, want to know a little bit about where the study was done. And when you say, well, actually, this is, you know, this is secondary English, this, and there actually weren't very many secondary English studies, but... If you see the studies in your subject, it's in your area, and it looks like a similar, you know, um, pupil population and things, you, you tend to be a little bit more confident about being able to apply it. And then you can sort of generalise it by trying it out for yourself and, you know, fitting it in with what you know to be, to, to, to work in the subject. And that, that point of teacher expertise and professional knowledge seems really key, you know, applying what you know, and, and that testing and learning as well. And but I think, yeah, drawing out the principle and applying that you know, is, is probably as far as we can go. So, Tom, were there any surprises that that really struck you in the review? What one of the one of the areas which uh, you know was really challenging, I think, was around dual coding, uh, and, it, and it, because it fit within um, a kind of larger theory. There, um, essentially, you know, you've got two channels visual, verbal, you've got finite capacity within them. So you straight away touched on cognitive load and all that brings in. And then you've also got this active process of kind of working with that information. Um, and I came into that thinking, well, it's, it's very simple, dual coding, you know, visual, you know, verbal, ideally you would talk and there'd be a picture and diagram and you work through it. And I quickly find from talking to 
you know, the neuroscientists on the team and reading, you know, some of the papers around that, that it's anyone's bet which source of information ends up in which channel in someone's mind. If you see the word cat written, you can visualise a cat, so it's a picture rather than a word, or you can say the word cat, so it's verbal. And if you have a picture of a cat, people think the word cat. So you give people a mixed presentation of information and it might end up in one channel or the other or both. And it depends by the, 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 the child and what they do. So I suddenly found, you know, the ground slipping from underneath me as this kind of, oh, yes, I, you know, I, I, I do PowerPoints and I put stuff on them. And suddenly I think I don't know what I don't even know which channel all this information is going to go down. I think that's one of the things that makes it that, that, that would have really. Yeah, that was one of the big surprises for me, I think. Tom, can I just ask, so you talk about your year for teacher self. I love that. I love that topic around habitats. <laughs> I, I just wonder, Tom, because the thing that struck me when I was reading this and I've just devoured it, you know, getting the every opportunity out of it to think about improving teaching and learning. I wonder if you could go back to that year for teacher self. What sort of key findings from the review? What what's in there that you would most want to sort of give yourself in that in that role, as it were? Yeah. So I mean, I, I think having really workable principles is really really helpful. Yeah. And I think some of the, I mean, going back to my early teacher self, I think that often what you get is your kind of list of stand you know standards you know NQT standards. It's a list of stuff that you can do, but not the principles of how to do it really well necessarily. So having a few nice tight principles that you can apply and they're not the only thing because you know you've it's behavior and relationships and content knowledge there's all these other things as well but having a few workable prints I think this is what really appeals is that yes it links back to the basic science but also you can sit someone down and explain uh, interleaving or space you can explain it in in a couple of minutes and it's quick to explain, but probably quite hard to implement and do. And you've got to work at it. But but still, it's a nice way of capturing and important. I think that's that that's what we uh, I think people look for, particularly when they're learning their craft. They're looking for kind of workable uh, principles of how to make sense of what is you know a really complex thing to do. Yeah. Because you're always dealing with it in that messiness of the classroom, aren't you? And you'd, I, I thought one of the really, the points that really struck me was that sense around dealing with the children's emotions as well mm. and how far that plays in terms of, of every aspect of this, essentially. And for us, with our focus on disadvantaged children and thinking, you know, the, the impact of of all of that sort of, absorption around anxiety perhaps around different aspects of their learning i must admit to be a little disappointed it didn't quite get enough evidence around the anxiety point because we we, we did i think it was half a dozen studies maybe um and, and this is i mean this goes back to the um the the basic science as well that we know that especially anxiety can crowd out working memory again you, you even when the applied evidence isn't there, you've got this mountain of basic science sitting behind you, which tells us that's important. We say in the report that a lot of what we see in the practice facing guidance and the current popularised account of cognitive science is very much focused on individuals and on information processing. It's how can I as a teacher deliver 
this information in a clear, consistent way, you know, with a worked example or job coded, and then, then that child, an individual child, learning that. And we know, especially in a primary classroom, it, it's it's about relationships. It's it's about um, children working together. It's about dialogue. It's about it, it, and I mean that that's harder to see. Uh, within and and it's not to say it wasn't there though in so in the cognitive load section a smaller group of evidence was around collaborative work on problem solving and we know from that work and the basic science again that working in a group tends to lower your cognitive load because people share the load of the task but this is the trickiness of the applied section might not be in a way that improves your learning yeah Sorry, Tom, that just <laughs> screamed out at me as I was reading it. I was seeing a hundred scenarios in the classroom. <laughs> sorry. We, we've all been there. We've, we've set a group task and one of the children has sort of dominated the group and some have sort of been there for the ride. But That year four classroom, absolutely. Sorry. Uh, that, that's an example, Tom, of, of kind of some of the memes and some of the kind of um, truths that appear to emerge, but actually when you start to trace back that they're not quite there. So, you know, they're kind of group work and and one person dominating and suddenly kind of simplified practices or, or simplified rejections of other practices mm. kind of occur. And, and I think, so one of the things, you know, the EF, as you know, and, and, and with your close support collaboration produced a kind of a shortened resource of, of about 30 or so pages to try and kind of mm. capture some of the the essence of the review um which has been really popular what's been your perspective just on the reception of the review and and has any of that surprised you is there any kind of things that you want to kind of push back on we've sort of put out a review there which has um said lots of apparently sort of contradictory things where we said cognitive science really matters teachers should really know about it um these are operative principles. They're they're changing the rates of learning in the classroom, and you know there's there's a lot there, and and some people really want to hear that, and that's that's you know they latch onto that, um, and then we're also saying, but 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 also um, that the applied evidence base is a lot more limited than the, the than the than certainly what's um, you might think from reading uh, a lot of the guidance there and, and from the, the basic science itself. So the evidence is a little more limited, a little less positive. In some cases, things do seem to translate across quite nicely. In other cases, they hit the complexity of the classroom in a way that doesn't um, make, I wouldn't say it stops them working, I'd say it makes it harder to to to, 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 to make it work in, in context. So. Yeah, so I mean, I've been very um, pleased with what, um, the, the the general reception to this because I think teachers have seen that message that we've almost, I suppose, in a way, said, "Well, we've described the evidence, but it's now to you to make sense of that and, and do something with it." The I, and I think that's exactly right because I mean, I I, I, I taught many years ago and um, and I wouldn't even say, you know, I'm an expert teacher and think I don't think it's for me to um, to make sense of it for, for what it looks like. One of my reflections as a former English teacher, uh, it wasn't too long ago, but enough for me to uh, forget the joys and the pains um, just enough. Um, it, it makes me think, this review makes me think in terms of 
the, the point in the system of cognitive science being kind of popular practice. It's a little bit like that, that pupil in class who's kind of been doing a piece of writing and, and they've made a, a good, really quick go at it. And they've mm -hmm. kind of written that, sir, sir, I finished, I finished. And then you mm -hmm. know, we're only 15 minutes in. And I know they haven't finished, but they think they've finished. And almost that kind of early excitement about cognitive science is kind of, it's happened. And, and, and now we're at that reflective phase where, you know, the teachers walked over with a 300 page review and, mm -hmm. and we've actually said, well, let's, let's look again. Let's really think hard about this. Let's reflect on, on what you've done, what you haven't done. And, and that whole process of revising and, and thinking through is I think that's what the review offers brilliantly. It offers that kind of tool for us to stop and, and revise some of our assumptions, you know, reflect on those principles and, and actually where the gaps are and, and where the opportunities are. I think one of the positive things there is the excitement about what we still want to know. And uh, over to you, Caroline, in terms of that, that primary point about, you know, the kind of application there. Absolutely. I, I, do you know one thing that really struck me in the review as well, Tom, is that point that teachers have accessed and understood this through their own independent study. And, and I just think of all of my busy primary colleagues who, who perhaps haven't had the opportunity to get to grips with this. And this provides such an important access point to, 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 to begin the conversation. For lots of, of my colleagues, this will begin the conversation. It, it will start that, that sort of question around early years settings. It'll start those questions around those year four or five maths lessons. I just think it, it's really powerful. Um, knowledge of it, understanding it, grappling with it. I just, there's, there's so much there for us to consider and to influence our practice at what could be a more important time to provide tools that really do influence our practice and maximize every opportunity in the classroom. So brilliant. I devoured all 372 pages of it, by the way. I mean that genuine, it's, it's readable, but maybe I had too much time on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> I think one key thing here is that I think we should generalize cautiously and reflectively and it's overlaid over and I mean over generalize um, I think that's within subjects as well as across them so at the level of you know being able to talk about the review and putting in things in boxes you can say well there's this subject or that subject or that age or that group but I think even within them so 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 let's say let's say you are a secondary English teacher and you you thought okay um, this this is kind of some of the conversations I've had that a, a lot of what's at the heart of the subjects is around sort of subtlety and shades of meaning and metaphor and and some of this stuff I see uh, is too it, it, it's it's too defined it's it's too kind of learning individual things and and I think that there's a temptation there to say well that, that's not that's not my subject. But I think when you look within subject, um, we know that, you know, say reading comprehension or uh, even to get to those more subtle points, there's the kind of more basic learning to be had there. So as a secondary English practitioner, you might be using retrieval practice to build your basics, even if you can't get to the kind of real heart of your subject via that. So a, an overgeneralization, which says, well, this is not for this subject, I think is too much. And I, and I think... That, that, that those are the kind of, that is, and, it, and it, even more nuanced we can ask questions about well what type of learning content what type or where in pupils learning journey does this fall 
it's it's, it's the the boundary we, there's a conversation around cognitive load between the distinction between novices and experts as, as it's often put and I think I'm interested in and I think teachers should be interested well how what's the boundary between these things how, how and how do you know it and how do you use formative assessment to to get to it um so I think it's and again that's a, that's a, almost a within learner generalization it's not worked examples work it's well they work here and at this point for this and they stop working at this point and, and I think that's a really hard expert subject specific content specific thing to to wrap your head around I, I think we could probably ask you questions all day Tom because the, yeah. there is so much nuance there's so much richness in the but I think just the, the questions you're posing there are really valuable and important ones to to frame teacher frame teachers thinking and, and CPD you know it won't be long before September starts and, and there'll be some applications of, of findings from the review and there'll be some revisions and reflections about past practices um, so I think this has been a real vital you know timely contribution um, to that to that exciting field of teachers engaging with evidence that you described earlier and I think uh, just a big thank you for coming on the podcast, but also thank you for you and the team, uh, that broad team of experts for producing um, something that I, I know um, we found so useful. Um, and just as uh, as co-presenters, we've devoured it, but we know lots yeah. of teachers have engaged with it in ways that they just haven't in the past with reviews. So that, that's a real achievement. Thank you. Yeah. It, it's been a pleasure for all of us. We've yeah, It's been a, re a really fascinating review. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. So, Caroline, that was that was really interesting. Um, lots of questions still, but just great to unpack and to think again about the review and, and kind of just kind of dig a little deeper. I think one, one of my reflections from, from all of those insights from Tom was this point about principles over kind of certain practices, you know, kind of that, we're always making professional judgments and, and applying. So, you know, since the review publication, Tom has been asked questions about, you know, does this apply to this phase, to this subject domain? And, and it's thinking really carefully about, okay, you know, how far is this principle generalizable to our subject area? You know, is the evidence just based on math problems and what does that mean? You know, and what can we translate and what can we draw from that? And that there's no, there's just no easy answers there. There's just professional dialogue, there's professional judgment, there's trial and error, there's coming back to the theory, coming back to the, you know, the, the cognitive science evidence and looking at the applications as well. So, you know, to simplify, you know, so it's the nuance, but the complexity, but ultimately that being about professional interpretation, application, and that, that in a way is really empowering. And I think that's perhaps why cognitive science has been so popular because it has spoken to teachers and they've been able to apply those theories and, and we won't have you know, got, got it right all the time and, and there'll still be you know, mistakes to be made. But there's something about that quite intellectual, energizing, reflective process that stood out for me. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a crucial point that, that teachers picking this, this up with, with a real appetite to, to facilitate the very best in their classroom to get, to get it right in a, in a sense that is almost that holy grail that you can never 
quite get it right. Okay, Caroline. So our next guest is um, a teacher, a practitioner based in Bradford, Mark Miller. Um, really pleased. We both know Mark. We've both done um, work with Mark. Um, really insightful, intelligent, committed, hardworking. And he's also taken time off for his summer um, to join this podcast. So uh, thanks for that, Mark. But uh, yeah, really pleased to get, Mark, your perspective on cognitive science and this review. First, could you just introduce yourself uh, and just a bit more of your background for us? Yep, I'm Mark Miller. I'm head of Bradford Research School. Um, I work for Dixon's Academies Trust, part of the Dixon's Teaching Institute. Uh, I'm also an English teacher, uh, have been for about 20 years. Um, apart my role also, I work with the Centre for Applied Education Research in Bradford. Great. And my first question, we're going to, we've talked um, to Tom Perry and, and, and the authors of the Cognitive Science Review, um, but we've recognised that cognitive science for a number of years now has emerged amongst teachers and school leaders as, as really popular and, and the evidence has been um, taken on in ways that other aspects of research evidence just simply haven't. Do you, can you just talk a little bit about your experience, um, your insights and understandings of cognitive science and, and where your interests emerged? Yeah, I've definitely been interested in cognitive science for a while, maybe a decade or so, but I would say that initial forays into it were perhaps quite naive, oversimplistic. Um, I try to read as much as I can to keep the knowledge fresh, even if that fresh knowledge comes from something written 30 years ago. Um, but initially, most of my engagement was through summaries of it. So I, I, I know a lot of people know Don Losky or people like Daniel Willingham, the learning scientists. Um, also increasingly looking at some of those original papers. And it was always really with the focus of looking for how things can improve my practice and also the, those that, that I work with. Increasingly, I guess I see it as central to learning or like an important of learning rather than an additional thing that I might have thought it before, this additional thing that we add to the kind of core business of teaching. For me, it's that science that complements the art of teaching, it helps to shape and inform our approaches. And it's part of that wider thing as well of being evidence informed and I think it's important to say that you know just like any particular element of cognitive science doesn't exist in a vacuum cognitive science the discipline doesn't exist in a vacuum either so it's all part of this journey of becoming more evidence informed. In the practice review it indicated that around 85 percent of teacher respondents thought that cognitive science was central to their practice and that's a, that's a huge proportion. And we can always take that kind of, you know, what that means with a little bit of a pinch of salt, you know, we're kind of, well, you know, exactly in exactly what ways. But what do you think are the challenges for teachers and school leaders, you know, taking theories, taking this evidence and, and this, yeah, this, what it looks like in the classroom, translation, practice, the messiness of that. What do you think are the challenges? I think, obviously, there's loads of challenges there's a, there's a really good quotation in the, uh, in the evidence summary in practice review, uh, one I'm definitely going to be quoting, and it says, um, nuance and reflection are needed uh, rather than prescription simplification and the blanket position of uh, the prevailing conceptions of best practice across subject, age, ranges and context. So I think that idea around caution, nuance, I mean, that, that's the buzzword in this interview, I guess, and reflection. I think these latest evidence summaries do provide that. Um, I guess any summary by definition isn't uh, 
the full picture. So anytime we summarize the evidence, we're not going to capture all of the, the nuance. So, so that, the challenge is to make sure that we do, and our job as school leaders is to make sure that those, those messages aren't lost. And I think that is a really difficult thing to do because we always want in school certainty, confidence. We always want to say this is what's going to work. And it's really hard to stand up in a CT session or a research event and say, we're not sure about this. And it's hard in a podcast to say this kind of thing as well. So, so I think uh, if, we, if we acknowledge that those are, those are the challenges, that it is complicated and we need to reflect, we need to have a degree of caution, then I think it's helpful. We overcome those while we think in terms of maybe principles rather than prescriptive strategies and I think you know the guidance does help us to, to do those even though you know that's difficult but I think um, if you think about something for example managing cognitive load um, that's a good principle to abide by that we should manage cognitive load but we're less clear on specific strategies so our job is to make sure that we support teachers to apply those principles and um, rather than prescribing a set of tick box strategies that we must yeah. must do I think that's the key point for me, that it provides a sort of set of tools, a set of thinking points. Those principles cannot be those blanket deliveries that we know teachers are hungry for, but there's just that degree of uncertainty, as you as you mentioned there. Um, that, that leads to a question, uh, Mark. You, you introduced and you, your background is secondary school English teacher, um, you know, who teachers who have the best background, um, <laughs> obviously. Um, and, you know, one of the questions um, Tom Tom raised, he'd, he'd had discussions um, following the review that um, questions about, you know, how many studies from secondary school English classrooms in England, you know, are, are clear and then kind of, you know, offer evidence in this review. And it's a relatively small number. Um, we talked about um, actually... It's about looking again for principles, looking for what's generalizable, what what isn't, where does the evidence, where is it really limited? Um, can you just talk a little bit about, again, your background as a secondary school English teacher, where have you drawn principles from cognitive science? Where, you know, where has it influenced your thinking? And perhaps where has it stopped? Where has, where has other aspects of, of, of your practice had to kind of compensate? Uh I was, I was reading the evidence summary. I was thinking uh, you should really teach maths, actually, if you want to get this wealth of studies and particular topics there. So um, I think it's a good, it is a good starting point to acknowledge that there's a lack of applied evidence in, in English, for sure. Um, and I, I guess while I'm approaching this from the perspective of that secondary English teacher, I think you say the same for other contexts. But it's, uh, I think the guidance says it's, it's important to note that a lack of evidence is not the same uh, as evidence that an approach is not successful. So I think for me, it's about generalizing from other contexts, particularly where principles seem to be consistent. I think for me, something like retrieval practice, which I've used regularly, you know, we, there are a large number of studies on retrieval practice. They range from early years to 16, 17 year olds, um, cover a wide range of subjects, including English, lots on vocabulary, knowledge, for example. English is not that different when it comes to how we remember things, I guess. So we can be confident in adopting retrieval practice. And, and, and I've done so, um, and I feel like I understand enough of the evidence to avoid some of the, the pitfalls. But then we look at what it looks like in an English classroom. And, and that's where 
I guess the, the professional expertise comes in. So there's nothing on memorizing quotations. Um, retrieval practice might be useful. But there's other approaches that we can, we can align with that too. I think as well for me, it's about, it's not just about the things that we should do. I think the evidence can help us with the things that we choose not to adopt as well. So that could be because there's a lack of evidence um, or also because I think when you look at some of the evidence, you realise it's harder to generalise that or harder to transfer that. I think interleaving is a good example of that. You know, we've got that consistent, solid evidence base in maths um, and really about that idea of discerning between uh, strategies. And it's not necessarily an approach where I see the huge benefits in the English classroom. Um, I won't pretend I've not dabbled in the past with interleaving. I think I'm quitting now. Um, but it, it's worth thinking about, you know, it's not about doing interleaving. It's what's the mechanism for change? What's the theory of change? Why are we, why are we doing it? What is it about the strategy that, that will lead to change? And I think um, for me as an English teacher, I think a good rule of thumb for any other teacher is this idea of, how something has worked and what's the, you know, the active ingredients, the mechanisms for change. And then we can adopt that um, rather than just turn this exact strategy and then kind of hope it just, it just works. I love that confession of um, dabbling and interleaving <laughs> there, Mark. I love that. And I suppose that brings us to a point there, you know, and we are dabbling and trying and because it, that, that evolving sort of sense of this science, but then the implementation in the classroom and the challenges of that, we touched on that with Tom too, the messiness of children and, and teachers, you know, all of that. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the, 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 the opportunities, the challenges that you have had and would um, consider, you know, might happen with the implementation of, of some of these these approaches and principles. Yeah, I think there's this this danger between knowing things and then being able to implement it, and it's not true for cognitive science. I think implementation is really, really important, and for me, increasingly, I see it um, as as being one of the most important things in schools. It's not easy. So I think on, on cognitive science in particular, so the EF and the implementation guidance report, they do talk about the explore stage. And I think this is one where the explore stage really matters. It's one where we really want to try and understand the evidence as best as we can. I know that's tricky for busy school leaders and teachers, and that's where the summaries and reviews can help. Um, I think the evidence summary, and this is really good at exploring um, not just the key principles, I think those are good, but those without everything else can be problematic. So I think it's a long read. It's over 300 pages, that evidence summary, but there is this lengthy exploration of implementation concerns after each section. So I think anyone who, who wants to lead on this needs to, needs to know it and also be aware of those ways that things can go wrong. Um, and some of the questions around, you know, optimal spacing gaps and which subjects are best to leave, et cetera, where the evidence is strong and weak. I think there's clear steers as well about the ways that misapplication of evidence can go wrong. We talk about lethal mutations and, and we have to be very, very conscious. And I think knowing the evidence base as best as we can and being able to talk about that, understanding the nuances, avoiding the easy answers means that, um, that we can avoid some of those misapplications. Too. Then we just get into the, the fact, the key factors of implementation really of anything. So taking time, to prepare the conditions. Cognitive science is one of these really interesting, exciting things. People see something, they want to do it. And 
And we just got to take our time on that. Really, it's about communicating, over communicating. I think that schools need to be careful before they just rush into a, um, an approach or a strategy um, without communicating where this comes from, how it originates. Um, and it's always about high quality training and support, something like this. You know, it's a real challenge to communicate and to train people up in in such a way as they fully understand it. So how do we how do we do that? And it and it takes time. And then I think finally for me is is that idea of sustaining this. So we can launch a strategy. We can say every lesson is going to have retrieval practice. That seems to be one of the things that happens. But over time, those things become something different. They become a a tick box and a lesson observation form, or they become and it must happen. So we need to just make sure that as things go on over time, we don't lose that thread between the evidence and the, and the practice. We've got to make sure that it's a, a constant. Yeah. Can I just ask a follow-up, Mark? So, you know, as you described, part of your work is training other teachers, you know, both within your trust, more widely in the research school role, you know, you've kind of communicated um, to hundreds of teachers. Just in terms of, so the, the EF has produced the kind of distillation of the of the larger review, which is 30 odd pages, that in itself is still, you know, a bit weighty for a lot of teachers. Um, and then we've got, you know, multiple areas of the cognitive science, haven't we, you know, with, within. What's your thinking currently, um, and perhaps advice in terms of just putting that to work, you know, how would you be communicating this evidence to colleagues? You know, what processes would would you know you try to you know, aim for that effective implementation? So I think part of that, like I said, is around principles and being very clear about why these are principles, where these principles come from. I think you've got to lean into the the complication and and the very variation, the nuanced nature of all of this. I think we have to make that part of the message too. And I think that's really, really important. Um, I think there are some places where we can be more confident. Um, and I think there's some places that we can acknowledge that there's this is an area that might be useful, but which um, we can be conscious about. If we introduce it in the wrong setting, we could lay the more misconceptions. I always think about interleaving as, as one of those places where um, if, you, if you, even if you did a, a very quick short session on it, it's probably not enough to, to detail. I'm going to ask you one um, question, um, and it's a tricky one because it's a bit of prognostication, but we've learned that Mark of Terms Past dabbled in interleaving. Um, what is mark of kind of terms future in two or three years? What do you think in terms of um, where will cognitive science be uh, in teaching and where do you think in your practice and in, in your school do you think cognitive science? Do you, I'm trying to kind of think about the maturity of this work. Where do we think we'll get to with it? Another good question. I think we learn things as we go along. For me, individually and personally, I think, there are things that are the popular aspects of cognitive science, the ones that everyone talks about, the ones that are sort of the front of this, these reviews, I guess, you know, we're talking about variable space. And I, I'm really interested in the other things that I know much less about. Um, so uh, I think embodied cognition was one of those elements there that it was um, something that I was really interested in reading up more about. And I think it's okay to admit I don't know enough about that there. Um, and it was interesting to read that there's, there's so many more 
studies that are there. My biases go against, I was always thinking about the sort of shadow of kinesthetic learners there, and I was reading that one. But I think there's, there's hopefully more areas where we explore that we don't know that we don't know much about them. I think for me as well, generative, generative learning. What I hope we get towards is the conversations that we might be having when we read that are, are slightly more commonplace. So um, yeah. we don't say retrieval practice is 100% effective, we should all be doing it. We say it's probably a good thing to be doing, but do understand that it's probably better in this context doing it like that. Um, it might be good if a few years from now we talk about cognitive science, but it's not necessarily seen as this additional thing. It's kind of just part of one of these many parts of, of effective teaching and, and, and long-term learning. I love that point, Mark, that, that it's not that onerous additional thing, that it's part of you know, it's part of our tiered approach. It's what what is it that that is the essence of that high quality teaching that we talk about in that everydayness. And I think the point you make also about that shared language, it becoming something that we do discuss openly, that what that we have an opportunity for everyone to feel they can engage in this discussion because we've got reviews like this one. You know, that for me is a really important point because so many of the colleagues I work with, when I say cognitive science, they say, huh, what? You know, there's a, there's a not, not had a chance because it's about what opportunity have you had for independent study? If you haven't had it, then, you know, you, your knowledge, it, it's not there, is it? And, uh, and to take that, there's that reality of kind of, you know, building, building that conversation, building that time for teachers, that professionalism. I think there are real positives that were cognitive sciences being embedded into the, you know, practices and approaches for, for new teachers, et cetera. So I think the real positives are probably Mark, I'll, I'll end with, with that kind of inspirational point about we we've got, lots more to find out individually, collectively, lots more research questions to ask. I think my kind of, when I read the review, I just left thinking, oh, I'd love to find out if this was the case. I'd love to find out this about practice. I'd love to know whether this applied to primary. I'd love to know whether, you know, this was something that applied in, in these other subject areas. So yeah, more questions. But yeah, real professional dialogue. And just thank you. I mean, your expertise shines through and, and you've engaged with this work and, and that real thoughtful exploration and that thoughtful application really comes through. So thank you from your for your time um, and taking it during the middle um, of a, a treasured summer too. <laughs> Oh, that was such a brilliant chat with Mark. So interesting to hear his perspectives, his journey from dabbling and 10 years of, of, of interest and independent study, as it were, around it. I just found that absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I think a crucial point for me was the one around implementation. And, and I could feel even in myself, as you were saying, that, that desperate desire to run into school with a, yes, today we're going to you know, on that first September training day, let's do retrieval practice and let's, and, and that recognition that it's so easy to, to fall into the trap of something we just quickly push out there without that considered explore phase that Mark talked so eloquently about, the significance of it and the fact that that review, be it lengthy and necessarily lengthy, I think we all recognise that, 
that that explores it. it it allows you the opportunity to dig into the detail to understand it talks there about implementation it talks about the challenges it breaks that down and it was it's just such a powerful point to have made i think at this stage think about it it's exciting it's the principles are there we want this the, the very best but that exploration really sort of yeah resonated with me and building on implementation what what struck me is almost a kind of an outcome of of thinking about that and what mark said and it, so mark's had 10 years of thinking about this and immersing himself in independent study and, and practice and teaching others about it and yet the reality is there's still lots of teachers who this is really quite new quite unfamiliar there'll be new teachers encompassing this for the first time there'll be really experienced teachers of 30 years who've heard it all before and are kind of tuning out so for me i think there's there's still a lot of consideration about given the complexity 300 plus pages of review review lots of thinking about practices application implementation that this requires deep sustained training it is about how children learn it's about how teachers teach there's no quick fix here there aren't the top tips the top of the pops <laughs> but there are useful insights and and it's about how do we continue to kind of weave this through the offer of, of professional learning for teachers i think it is really good that new teachers this is going to be they're going to kind of assume that this has always been known aren't they this is going to be their yeah. experience yeah. That, you know spacing and retrieval practice these are terms that that are a given and yet you know we know a bit longer in the tooth you know that the kind of that hasn't always been the case and and that terminology like cognitive load theory, you know, perhaps, you know, it was, you know, zone of proximal development. That was the earlier equivalent. And, yeah. but we also know with terms like that, with concepts like that, they come and go. Uh, and, and so for me, the reviews really useful as a staging post in what is a, a long journey of continual training and support for teachers. Thank you for, for brilliant co-presenting and, and, and questioning mm -hmm. and answering. And, and it was really great to have the input of um, the primary researcher, Tom, and, and representing the team of researchers and also from Mark and, and many like him who just represent thoughtful practitioners yeah. you know, putting this to work. Um, so if you want more professional dialogue, more exploration of evidence, then do subscribe to our Evidence Into Action podcast. Um, our next podcast coming soon, which is um, on the updated EEF toolkit. Lots to dig into there. We'll get, um, get a chance to talk to Professor Steve Higgins, who is just you know, a brilliant um, researcher who communicates evidence in, in such a brilliant way. Perhaps no surprise he's got um, primary school teaching experience as well. Uh, all the best have. Um, yeah. he, and he taught just next to me, Alex, really close in Cromlington. Yeah. Good. Touch by his genius. Uh, so yeah, look forward to that. Subscribe um, and follow the podcast. <laughs>